This message was given at Des Moines Campus Fellowship Summer Leadership Training back in 2019. The theme that summer was typology, studying the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. Campus Fellowship Director Jacob Bennett explains how Moses points to Christ. We hope this is encouraging. So what is typology? Okay, that's what this summer is all about. Um, and recently I was listening to this guy. He's a classical musical composer and speaker. He did a TED Talk back in 2008. His name is Ben Zander. Um, and he talked about how no one is tone deaf. No one is tone deaf. Even if you cannot sing for the life of you, nobody is tone deaf entirely. And he proved his point by playing a few notes. And so I'm going to play those notes for you now. Um, and, and we are going to sing praises to Jesus. Okay, ready? No, I'm sorry. Don't, don't stand up. I don't know how to play much piano. Um, but here we go. I'm going to give you four notes. And then if you're brave enough, I want you to hum the fifth note. Here we go. Can you hear that? Okay. There we go. Yeah, you guys get it, right? So if I were just to play, if I were just to play, Okay, there we go. Now, here's the thing. Here, here's his point. Four notes, you play them all in order, and you're waiting for that fifth note, that last bum. And Chopin, actually, he saw this and he wrote a whole prelude to it. So we have time tonight, and so let's just go ahead and listen to Chopin Prelude, and I don't know exactly what uh, etude or number it is for those of you who are musicians, um, I, I memorized it, but let's listen to it, and I want you to listen for the resolution of that note, okay? So go ahead and play that now. Thank you. 
Why do I bring this up? Okay, this is the concept of what typology is. In Genesis, God sets some notes together. And we're anticipating that there will be the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. And with every character along the way, we're asking the question, is this the guy? Is this the guy? Is this the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who is the seed of the woman? And we get to Moses, and I'm, I'm going to spoil it for you. Moses is not the guy. Jesus is the guy, okay? Um, but we get to Moses, and it's very clear that Moses is meant to point to Jesus. And so the primary passage that we're going to talk about is in Deuteronomy 18. And kind of like in, in the, the piece by Chopin, you know, he hits these notes that you're like, oh, close, maybe kind of, not really. And that's what we want to know. So we want to know the patterns in Moses that point to Jesus. And so in Deuteronomy 18, we'll read this. It says in verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so that we will not die. Then the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. And so in here we see God has promised that there would be a prophet who would be raised up from among the people who would be like Moses. And we are to listen to him. So let's pray. Jesus, I just ask you tonight, help us to uh, focus the eyes of our heart on your word. I pray that, uh, God, there is so much about Moses. There is so much there. I pray you just help me, God. Help me to speak clearly. Help me to, um, yeah, to communicate what your spirit would have to communicate. Um, there are so many ways to, to look at patterns. And Lord, I pray that if, if I go uh, beyond this into a, a way that you don't see that there's a pattern there, God, I pray that it would fall off our minds, God. Um, but yeah, I pray that we would uh, become more like Christ because of your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So why do we look at Moses? I think we need to answer this question first. Why look at Moses? And why look at him as a type of Christ? Well, firstly, is that it's prophesied through Moses. Like, we're not just picking out some random character in the Old Testament and saying, well, I guess this person has to point to Jesus. Um, Aaron, her, I guess they all typify Christ in some way. No, no, we, we don't want to do that necessarily. But here, Moses, we're going to let Scripture interpret itself. And God is telling us that there will be a prophet that will be from among the people who will be like Moses, and we are to listen to him. So God's word clearly tells us that Moses is a type of this prophet who is to come, and that we will be held accountable. Whoever doesn't listen to the words of this prophet will be held accountable. Okay? 
at the end of Moses' life, in Deuteronomy 34, it says, No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unparalleled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent to do against the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his officials, to all his land, and for all the mighty acts of power and terrifying deeds that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Moses was a great prophet. And there is prophesied through Moses, there would be one like him. And we have to answer the question, who is that? So John the Baptist, we come on the scene of John the Baptist in the book of John. And the question is posed to him, hey, are you the prophet? In John 1, it says, this was John's testimony. When the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? Uh, to ask him, who are you? He didn't deny, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then? Are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then? They asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? And what we see is that the people coming to John the Baptist were expecting this person called the prophet. That there would be a prophet like Moses. They'll be raised up from among the people to whom they were to listen to. And they're asking, hey, John, are you that guy? Hey, and are you this guy? Are you this guy? And John's like, no, I'm none of those people, um, actually. And so here's what happens next, okay? John says this, says, verse 26, I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He's the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And so what is John saying? He's saying, no, I'm not the prophet. But hey, there's someone among you. What does he say next? It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist knew he was not the prophet. That God was going to raise up from among the people but Jesus was. So John, in his early ministry, he's pointing to Jesus as the one. Philip, Philip saw Jesus as the anticipated prophet as well. In John 1 later, it says in verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and so did the, did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And so Philip, he connects the dots. He said, we found the one Moses wrote about. It's Jesus. So not only did Philip see Jesus as the anticipated prophet, but, but Peter. Like Peter directly takes this passage in Deuteronomy 18 and he applies it to Jesus. In Acts 3, there's the, the day of Pentecost. And Peter gets up and he preaches this, this sermon to the people. And he says in Acts 3.19, Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshment, refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and he, that he may send Jesus, who's been appointed for you as the Messiah. 
Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Who's the prophet from the beginning? Who are you talking about? Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. Peter takes Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 19, and he applies it directly to Jesus. He says, Jesus, this is the one. This is the prophet like Moses from among the, the people that we must listen to. Not only Peter applied this passage to Jesus, but Stephen did as well. Later in Acts 7, you know, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, he stands up and he's giving uh, an experience expository sermon on the nation of Israel and its history, and he gets to Moses. And he says in Acts 7.35, this Moses whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. And so it is abundantly clear to me that this passage is meant to directly point to Jesus and it's also meant to directly point to Moses, saying this prophet is like Moses. Paul, he makes the appeal to Moses when he makes the case for Jesus as well. In Acts 26, it says, To this very day, I have had help from God, and I stand and testify to both small and great, saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and, and to the Gentiles. At the end of Paul's life, he's in a Roman prison and people are coming to him. Um, and this is what it says at the end of his life in Acts 28. He says, After arranging a day with him, many came to him at his lodging. From dawn to dusk, he expounded and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. And so Paul, he builds the case for Jesus by starting with the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And you got to think particularly like this verse in Deuteronomy is a big part of it. That Moses, there'd be a prophet like him to whom we are to listen to. Jesus, he also makes his appeal to Moses when he's explaining who he is. There's the story of the two men on the road to Emmaus. This is after Jesus dies and is risen again. And these two men don't understand who they're talking with at first. Um, and what does Jesus say in Luke 24? He says, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Later, Jesus appears to his disciples and they're out fishing again. You know, and he, he does this, you know, miracle where they aren't catching fish and they do catch fish. And then they realize, oh my goodness, that's Jesus on the beach. And they come to him and they eat some fish with him. 
And this is what he says to his disciples. He says, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in the name of the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And it wasn't just in his resurrection that he appealed to Moses, but it was in his life as well. During Jesus' life, as the Pharisees and you know, people are coming to him, uh, this is what Jesus says about himself. In John 5, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote of me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? And so Jesus makes a direct appeal. He says, Moses, he wrote of me. And we understand that Jesus is the prophet in the likeness of Moses from the people that we are to listen to. New Testament commentary also connects Jesus and Moses. In Hebrews 3, it says, Moses was a faithful servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. And lastly, Jesus is seen with Moses and Elijah. On the mount where Jesus is transfigured, what, what does it say? It says in Luke 9, suddenly two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So the, the connection between Jesus and Moses is abundantly clear, okay? And when we talk about how Moses is a type of Christ, here's what I want to say, okay? This is what we're not talking about. We all maybe understand and know the story of uh, the people are being judged by God in the desert. God sends serpents to go bite them, and many are dying because they're serpents. And he says to Moses, hey, make a bronze serpent, lift it up. And anyone who looks at the serpent, they'll be cured. And so Moses does that, and anyone who looks at the serpent, like, is cured. And Jesus said, in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up. So anyone who believes in him, like, will not perish. Now that is a type of Christ. The bronze serpent being lifted up, that is a type of Christ. But that is not Moses. That's, that's a bronze serpent. The tabernacle that gets set up. You know, this tabernacle is this elaborate system of worship where there's the presence of God and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and there's this table of showbread and oil lamp and there's an altar. Um, the tabernacle is also a picture of Jesus that Moses institutes. But that's not what we're talking about tonight. Because this verse in Deuteronomy, it says that, what, what does it say? It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among your brothers, 
you must listen to him. Moses as a person was to typify who Christ was. And so as we think about Moses, and we're going to go through a lot, I'm going to just, you know, go through a lot. Mr. Slides guy, I might not read every verse on the slides, uh, but so here's what we're going to do is we're just going to go through the life of Christ and just be blown away by how the circumstances and the titles of Moses' life resemble Christ. And I think there's three main ways that the life of Moses typifies the life of Christ. And the first way is in his childhood and early life. So in his childhood and early life, the life of Moses was typical. It typified the life of Christ. Moses and Jesus were both born under oppression of foreign rule. Moses was born as the people of God, the Israelites, were under the, uh, the rule of the Egyptians. And Jesus was born when the people of God were under the rule of the Romans. And both were oppressive. Um, Moses and Jesus were both born in the midst of a great systematic killing of Jewish babies. Jewish male babies. In Exodus 1, it says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the, the first whose name was Shifra and the second whose name was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. And what do we know about Jesus? What do we know about what happens during his time frame? Well, in Matthew 2, it says, Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years and under in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. So both Jesus and Moses, they're born under foreign oppression. Both, there's a massive systematic killing of Jewish babies, particularly the men. And both were hidden from their oppressors in Egypt. What happened with Moses? So with Moses, you know, his mother, you know, she finds him beautiful and she's like, I don't want to do this to my baby. She puts him in a, in a little basket, you know, covers it with pitch, puts it out in the water. Pharaoh's daughter finds it. And Moses get, ends up getting raised in the home of Pharaoh, who's like been killing all the babies. This is totally ironic. Okay? And, and totally amazing that God does this. But what happens with Jesus? Okay? With Jesus in Matthew 2, it says in verse 14, so he got up, this is speaking of, of Joseph, uh, Joseph, he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, out of Egypt I called my son. And that's a reference to Hosea 11. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. It's a prophecy. So both Moses and Jesus, they were spared. And they were hidden in Egypt during the time of persecution and oppression and the killing of innocent babies. Moses and Jesus were also separated from a father. Jesus said in John 16, I came from the father and have come into the world. Jesus, the Son of God, he was separated from his Father. On the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he experiences a real separation from his Father. 
what happens with Moses? Well, he goes into the Pharaoh, you know, Pharaoh's household, and he's separated from his father. In fact, we don't hear much about his father in the entire story. We know, of course, he had a biological dad. I mean, we know how that, wor that works. Um, but, but he's not mentioned anywhere in the story. Moses and Jesus were also both adopted. In Exodus 2.10, it says, When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Now, what do we know about Jesus, okay? Well, we know if you were really trying to get under his skin, you'd point to the fact that he wasn't really Joseph's son, you know? This is what they said about Jesus when they were trying to get under his skin in Mark 6, verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. And this is the thing. How do they refer to the Jesus? Well, typically you're, you refer to a person as the son of whoever the father is. Okay? But these people are trying to get under his skin. They don't like Jesus. They're offended by him. And they call him the son of Mary. Because everyone knew Joseph wasn't the real dad. But Joseph adopts Jesus. He calls him his own son, and he raises him in his household. So both Moses and Jesus were adopted into a household. Uh, they were both also named by their adoptive parents. Exodus 2.10 goes on and says, uh, She named him Moses because, he, she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses is, is named by his adoptive parent. In Matthew 1, it says, But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so Jesus is named by his adoptive parent, and so is Moses. There are also, there's little recorded about their childhood. Uh, both Moses and Jesus have very little spotty history. Um, in chapter 2, verse 11 of Exodus, it says years, years later, after Moses had grown up, you know, he went out to be uh, to his own people and observed their forced labor. What do we know about Jesus? There's very little about his childhood. The only story about his childhood is about how the family goes to Jerusalem and for a festival, they, they're leaving, and then Jesus stays behind at the temple. But that's the other thing about this, is that both had an early understanding of where they really belonged. The first event where they're seen acting as adults, and I know Jesus isn't an adult yet, but like he's acting like an adult in this scene. Um, the first scene is their their understanding of where they really belonged. What does it say of Jesus in Luke 2? He says to his parents, why are you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what, the, what he said to them. And what about Moses? Moses chapter 2 says, uh, years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed the forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. Both Moses and Jesus, they understood 
where they really belonged. That, you know, Moses understood he really belonged with the people of God. And Jesus really understood that he really belonged with his father at a very young age. Here's the other thing is that why did they do this? Well, both were looking for another kingdom. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered the reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater than the wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. Now, does Moses have in his head the whole time he's doing this for Jesus? N no, he, but he does have this anticipation that there's another kingdom to live for. And so he considers it more wealthy, more worthy to be counted among God's people who are in utter slavery than to enjoy the pleasures of sin, and to be among the household of the wicked. And so he gives it all up. And friends, it is, if we want to listen to Jesus, this, this prophet in the likeness of Moses to whom we are to listen to, what is one thing that Jesus says? He says, he, he tells us to count the cost. To count the cost of what it would mean to follow him, to give up your life, it is better, it is better to be mistreated in the household of God and be among God's people than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin and to pursue what the world pursues. And so are you going to be among God's people only until you're offended? <laughs> you know, someone uh, steps on your toes? Or as long as it's convenient for you or you're, or you're having fun? Friends, if we want to listen to Jesus, we have to learn to count the cost. And the cost is high. It, it calls our own life, you know. But we need to listen to Jesus in this way. And so when I think about how the, the life of Moses, his birth, his early life, you know, we need to consider the, the, this world, it's passing away as fleeting, and really think, you know, what is the cost? to be among God's people? Am I willing to bear that kind of a cost for the sake of Christ? Secondly is his life and his ministry, okay? In the life and ministry of Moses, it typifies, it sets up a pattern of what Christ was to be like. And so there's a lot here, and we do this, you know, I'm doing this because if you want to set up a pattern, you can't just pick individual you know, five individual data points to be like, well, Jesus is a man, Moses is a man, Jesus had long hair, Moses probably had long hair. Like, no, no, there, there needs to be more to it than that. Like, we need to get specific, okay? And it's, it, is, it is crazy to me how specific it gets. So the life and ministry of Jesus and Moses are so, so similar. Both went out to God's people. Exodus 2.13 says, The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you attacking your neighbor? And what do we know about Jesus? In John 1 it says, He came out to his own. 
That's how John describes Jesus. He came out to his own. But not only did they both go out to God's people at their first coming, they were both rejected by God's people at their first coming. Exodus 2.14, the response from the person Moses is talking to says, Who made you commander and judge over us? The man replied, Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? You know, well, how was Jesus received? Well, John 1.11, he says, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Both went out to God's people at their first coming and both were rejected by God's people at their first coming. Also, they both, they both went secondly to Gentiles. So what happens after Moses gets rejected by his people? Well, Pharaoh starts to get after him, you know, and Moses flees for his life. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now, the land of Midian is connected in the family. Midian is of the descent of Abraham, but he's not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. To be an Israelite is to be of the family line of Jacob, who was named Israel. So Moses, he goes out to the Gentile land. What happens with Jesus? Well, Jesus is approached by a Gentile at one time. Okay, and here's how his interaction with the Gentile woman goes. The woman is asking for her daughter to be, you know, relieved from tormentation by a demon. And Jesus says in Matthew 15, he replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And this response is just amazing. Yes, Lord, she said. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus replied to her, Woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from another moment, and from that moment, her daughter was healed. Jesus, his, his ministry was primarily to the Jews and secondarily to the Gentiles, and it was for all. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God, thanks, Jonty. <laughs> it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So both go to the Gentiles after rejection and both meet a Gentile woman and have a Gentile bride. This is like crazy, you know? Uh, what happens next in the story of Exodus? Uh, Exodus 2.16 says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Okay. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit. Basically some shepherds come. They give them some hassle. Moses chases off those shepherds. And then um, the women go back to their father and, their fa and tell them the story. Like, oh, there's this man. He saved us from these bad guys at the well. And the guy's like, oh, great. Where is he? And they're like, oh, we left him back at the well. And, <laughs> and it's like, well, what? Huh? Um, so here's what, you know, Exodus 2, verse 21, 21, Moses comes and says, Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Moses gets a Gentile bride. What do we know about Jesus? In John 4, it says he had to travel through Samaria. Samaria is the land of half Jew, half Gentile. 
probably worse than a Gentile if you're a Jew. You know, you think of them as like the, the half-breed. They're very, very racist, okay? So John 4 says he had to travel through Samaria, and so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. And what do we know about this story? A Samaritan woman comes. Jesus asks for water. She draws up water. And Jesus says, I have living water. You know nothing about. She says, give me this living water. And what does Jesus say? Um, what does the woman say to him? He says, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. Well, she, Jesus reveals all of her history. And she's like, oh. And she says, I know that the Messiah is coming who's called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. It seems like she knew that there was a prophet coming to whom she should listen to. Right? Was he to say, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And it's pretty clear to me that the woman at the well, she comes into the kingdom. She becomes part of the bride of Christ. And she's a Gentile. Moses comes to a well, finds a Gentile bride. Jesus comes to a well, and a Gentile is brought into his bride, the church. Also, Moses and Jesus both have a second coming tied to a covenant. In Exodus 2, verse 23, it says, After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of the difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. From this time, what happens, Moses ends up getting sent by God to go free the people of Egypt from slavery in Egypt. And it's tied to the covenant God made with Abraham. Friends, Jesus has initiated a much better covenant, and because of that covenant, he's coming back as well. Both have a second coming tied to a covenant promise God has made to his people. There, Moses was an actual shepherd, while Jesus is the good, great, and the chief shepherd. Uh, we could belabor this point, but Moses, actually, he became an actual shepherd in Midian. Um, and what do we know about Jesus? In John 10, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In Hebrews 13, he's described as the great shepherd. And in 1 Peter 5, he's described as the chief shepherd. And some people look at these titles, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, and think these are actually titles of prophet, priest, and king. And what we'll find about Moses is that all three of those titles apply to him. He is the first prophet, priest, king in Israel. And he's the last one until Jesus that occupies all three offices. Moses and Jesus, they both had a message with signs that, took, that promoted belief. In Exodus 4, what happens is God gives Moses and Aaron, so they're kind of tag-teaming together, a sign to give to the people so that they would listen to them, um, saying, come follow us, we're going to leave Egypt. So what, is it, what does it say in Exodus 4? It says, Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had, they had seen their misery, they knelt low 
and worshiped. There are signs. The people of God believe, yes, you've been sent. They knelt low and they worshiped. What do we know about Jesus? In John 2, it says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs. It's talking about turning the water into wine. In Cana of Galilee, he revealed his glory and the disciples believed him. The purpose of the signs of Jesus was to reveal his glory and that people would believe in him. And at the end of John, in John 20, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But both, they displayed signs and were also not believed by some. Pharaoh was not believed. He, he did not believe in the signs when Moses performed signs in front of him. Um, what do we know about Jesus in John 12? It says, even though he performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. So not everyone believed through the signs. It doesn't really work that way. It's not a you know, lock-in. But we know they both displayed signs, people believed, and then there were some that didn't. They both were also involved in healing lepers. Now, this is, this is kind of crazy. So Moses, he's before God, burning bush, and he's like, God, how do I know that, like, you're going to be with me? Like, give me a sign of some kind. Like, and God tells him, okay, right, take your hand, put it in your cloak. You know, he puts it in, he pulls it out, and it's leprous. It's white. And if you're Moses, you're probably thinking, like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to die at some point. <laughs> like, I just contracted leprosy. <laughs> Um, and then God tells him, put your hand back in. So he puts his hand back in, pulls it out, and it's, and it's clean. He's, he's healed of his leprosy. What happens later in Moses' life? They're wandering around the desert, and his wife, Miriam, contracts leprosy. It says, then Moses cried out to the Lord, God, please heal her. And God does. I think this is the first leper that gets healed. Jesus, he healed lepers, of course. <laughs> we know this. In Mark 1, uh, he's moved with compassion to heal a leper. And it says that he reached out his hand and touched him, said, I am willing. He told him, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Then he sternly warned them and set them, uh, sent him away at once, telling him, see that you say to no one, but go show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded you for cleansing as a testimony to them. Moses wants this leper to go to the priest and offer the offering that Moses prescribed for ritual cleanliness so the priests would see a leper has been cleansed. When was the first time that happened? Moses. What's going on, guys? I, I, I think this is meant to point to Christ, this healing of the leper, and how the first healed leper is Moses' wife. They also bring plagues of wrath prior to initiating a new kingdom. So when Moses comes, we all know, wrath rains down on Egypt. Plagues galore, you know? Um, we all know that story, okay? Here's the thing. In Revelation 15, this is what it says. Then I saw another great awe-inspiring sign in heaven, seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. I also saw something like the sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had won the victory over the beast, its image and the number of its name, were standing in the sea of glass with harps from God. They sang the song of God's servant, Moses, and the song of the Lamb. 
and then there's a song. I'm not going to sing. I'm horrible, probably singer. I don't even know the tune. Um, and then the bowls of wrath get poured out one by one. And so it's, it's curious to me, why is this the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb? It seems like there's a parallel here. <laughs> um, also, Moses, he institutes the first Passover. Jesus institutes the last Passover. He says that he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave, gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus initiates a new ordinance that we'd follow in communion. Uh, they both demonstrate power over the sea. So, you know, Moses pulls out staff, you know, the sea splits into two. The people walk through the Red Sea. They're safe. They get to the other side. The Israel or the Egyptian army is like pursuing them. And it says Moses in Exodus 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. And it does. The Psalms, they comment on this, this event, this parting of the sea and splitting. And it says in Psalm 106, he rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. And he led them through the depths as through a desert. What do we know about Jesus? He's out on the sea with his disciples. They're all scared. There's a huge storm. In Matthew 8, it says, And he said to them, Why are you afraid? You have little faith. He, then he got up and rebuked the winds in the sea, and, they were, and there was a great calm. Both rebuked the waters, and they obeyed them. They also bring water to those dying of thirst. In Exodus 15, after parting through the Red Sea, they're going on. It says they came to Marah, but they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. And that is why it is named Marah. The people grumbled to Moses, why, what are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. And what do you know about Jesus? He said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never get thirsty again. Both brought water to the thirsty. They also both miraculously fed hungry people in the wilderness. In the life and ministry of Moses, we know it's the manna that falls from heaven. That's, that supplies the needs of people throughout the whole lifetime of the desert. And what do we know about Jesus? In, in Mark 8, he feeds crowds. You know, thousands of people with a few fish and loaves. He, they miraculously, they feed hungry people in the desert miraculously. They also were both judges of God's people. In Exodus 18, it says, Then the next day Moses sat down to judge the people, and they stood around Moses from morning until evening. And Jesus, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he's done, whether good or evil. Both are judges of God's people. Both made atonement for sin. After the people, they fall down and they worship this golden calf. Uh, Moses, it says in Exodus 32, the following day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a grave sin. Now I want to go up to the Lord. Perhaps I'll be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a grave sin and they've made a God of gold for themselves. Now if you would only forgive their sin but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. Moses goes up to make an atonement for sin, to intercede 
for the people of God. And he even says, if I have to be erased from the book you have written, let it be so. And what do we know about Jesus? He intercedes for us. On the cross, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. They also both had intimate connection with the Lord and spoke God's commands. In Exodus 11, I'm sorry, Exodus uh, 33 says, the Lord would speak with Moses face to face just as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. His assistant, the young man, Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. So you'd hear from the Lord and then you'd go tell the people the commands. This is what Jesus says in John 12. For have I not spoken on my own, or for I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who has sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. They also, they both fasted for 40 days. Moses on the mountain, as he's receiving the Ten Commandments, he fasts for 40 days. Jesus in the wilderness, he fasts for 40 days. They were also both transfigured on a mountain. Uh, in Exodus 34, Moses goes up, he gets the law of God, uh, he comes back down to the people and they say, oh, your face is so bright, put a veil over it. We can't stand it. And what do we know about Jesus? Well, it's recorded in three of the Gospels about the Mount of Transfiguration. And we all know Jesus, he is transfigured before their eyes, he is, becomes bedazzling, you know, it's, he gets bedazzled. <laughs> um, and what does it say in Mark? In Mark 9, 7, it says, A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Moses has appeared with Jesus, with Elijah, and they know there's a prophet coming to whom we should listen to. They're both transfigured on a mountain. They're also both priests and consecrated a priesthood. In Exodus 40, it says, Then bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water, clothe Aaron with holy garments, anoint him and consecrate him so he can serve me as a priest. And so the whole family of Aaron is consecrated as priests. And Moses himself is a priest in the likeness, that Jesus would be in the likeness of. Jesus is our great high priest. And in 1 Peter 2, it says that we are a royal priesthood. Both are priests and both initiate a priesthood. Um, both are known for their meekness. In Numbers 12, 3, it says Moses was a very humble man, more than anyone on the face of the earth. And what does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. They were both servants of the Lord. In Numbers 12, it says, Listen to what I say. If there is a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant, Moses. He's faithful in all my household. And Hebrews 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Moses was a faithful servant as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. Both are servants faithful over a household. Moses sent out 12 spies into the promised land. Jesus sends out 12 disciples to proclaim the kingdom in Luke 9. Moses and Jesus were both teachers of God's people. Um, Moses taught the law of God. 
and Jesus expounded on it. Jesus says, have I not, have I spoken openly, I've spoken openly to the world, I've always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews congregate, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. Moses initiates a law, and Jesus fulfills the law, and both were mediators of a covenant. Moses the old covenant, Jesus the new. They're also both kings of God's people. In Deuteronomy 33, it says, Moses gave us instruction a possession for the assembly of Jacob. So he became king of Jeshron when the leaders of the people gathered with the tribes of Israel. And friends, Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. If my king were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And this is a lot, okay? I know that. But here's what I want you to get, is that the life and the ministry of Moses typifies the life and ministry of Christ in so many ways, it is absolutely ridiculous. And God is writing a story. And what a powerful God, what a great God we have that would have this guy Moses in the story and then have this guy Jesus who would be like Moses. Moses and Jesus are both the humble prophet, priest, king, servant, teacher, mediator, intercessor, shepherd, judge, with so many circumstances in their life and ministry similar. It is, it's pretty ridiculous. Any one of these individually, you look at it and it's like, oh, you know, okay. But all of them collectively together is, is pretty amazing. And you can trust that if God is writing a story and he can do this, you know, what, what issues do you have in your life that are hard to trust him with? Is money tight? Like, do, you have, do you have family issues going on? Are you trying to figure out even still, like, what am I going to do with my life? I'm still trying to figure that out, FYI. <laughs> but are there things you just, it's, it's hard to trust God with this. Are things not going your way sometimes in your small group or your Bible study or your campus? Like, isn't God so much greater? Isn't he writing such a bigger story than some of our, our puny little things sometimes that we have difficulty trusting him in? See, God, he knows every hair on your head or your back. You know, what it, however it needs to work for you, okay? Uh, lastly, lastly, okay, the death of Moses. The death of Moses points to Christ in two main ways, okay? Both Moses and Jesus had to die for their people to receive an inheritance. Moses had to die because of his disobedience. He struck a rock out of anger, and God said, all right, you can't enter the promised land you and your whole generation have to pass away. So Moses had to die before the people could inherit the promised land God had given them. Jesus had to die before we would inherit heavenly treasures that would last forever. An inheritance unspoiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you and I. We get God, guys. Both also had bodies that went missing. 
this is crazy. Deuteronomy 34 says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the Lord's word. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, facing Beth Peor, and no one to this day knows where the grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not weak and his vitality had not left him. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. It's strange. Moses dies, but it says his vitality had not left him. His eyes were not weak. And no one knows where the grave is, guys. What in the world? <laughs> um, and what do we get insight into? Jude 9, okay? Jude 9 says, Yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. There's an argument going on in heaven, in the heavenly places, between the devil and Michael the archangel about the body of Moses. But it makes sense, right? Because who appears on the mount when Jesus is transfigured? Moses and Elijah. It's like, there's the body. And so both had bodies that went missing. And we can listen to Jesus because we know that our inheritance is guaranteed forever by his death and his resurrection. And Moses, his death, points so much to Jesus, guys. It is absolutely, utterly amazing to me. And so I want to encourage you, have a high view of scriptures, okay? Like, this should just blow our minds that so much of Moses points to Jesus in this way. That God was faithful to raise up from among the brethren a prophet like Moses, and we should listen to him, friends. We should remember his greatness, that he's worthy, is able, he's trustworthy, he has everything in control. You know, he's writing a story. Nothing in our lives we can't trust him with. And he has this inheritance that's guaranteed by his death and his resurrection. But friends, we have to count the cost. Like Moses, who considered, you know, the, the, the pleasures of earthly sin, you know, fading. We have to consider and count the cost that being among God's people is of more value than the passing pleasures of sin. Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.